Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Then Herod the king summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he said, and, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Two years ago in Hollywood, there was a, an award given. It wasn't the Emmys and it wasn't the Academy of the Award. It was a much more significant award for those in Hollywood. It was called the Award for the American Cinematic Association. It's an award given to the person who has advanced filmmaking over that year. And it was given to Robert Downey Jr. Now, the rule in that particular award ceremony is that the recipient can ask anyone to be the presenter. And so Robert Downing chose Mel Gibson to present the award. Now, two years ago in Hollywood, there was no one who was a greater pariah than Mel Gibson. Seven years earlier, he had financed and filmed the movie Passion of the Christ, and most people in Hollywood hated that movie. Two years after he made that movie, he was drunk. He was arrested, driving drunk. When the officer told him to get out of the car, he got out of the car and he began to cuss a blue streak with racial slurs and anti-Semitic uh, bilge. It would have made Alec Baldwin blush. Three years after that, it was marital infidelity and a high-profile divorce. A year after that, he was on videotape abusing his girlfriend. Nobody in Hollywood had anything to do with Mel Gibson. And yet here, Robert Downing Jr. receives the award from Mel Gibson, turns to the audience, and he says, I want to thank Mel, my good friend, for presenting the award tonight. And I have a reason for having Mel Gibson present that award to me. You see, when I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope. He urged me to find a faith that was founded on forgiveness. And when I couldn't get a job, he cast me in a role that was written for him. He kept a roof over my head. He kept food on my table. And more than that, 
he encouraged me to take responsibility and embrace that part of my soul that was ugly. He called it hugging a cactus. He said, if I hug the cactus, the sinful part of my soul, I would be a humble man. And life would begin to take on new meaning. And it has. In fact, in doing all of this for me, he said only one thing. There's only one thing I require, and that is that you do it for somebody else. Some other guy that's in need. Now, Mel couldn't have imagined when he told me that, that he would be that guy. He couldn't have imagined that tonight would be that night. So on this special occasion, I humbly ask you, unless you're completely without sin, to stand with me and publicly forgive my friend Mel Gibson. I ask you to join me in offering to him what you've given to me, a clean slate. Because I think he's hugged the cactus long enough. And with that, the audience stood in the ballroom at the Hollywood Hilton. And everybody cheered and clapped. And Mel Gibson was embraced by Robert Downey. You know, somebody said that when Jesus forgives you, he wipes your slate clean. And that's a lie. If Jesus wipes your slate clean when he forgives you, then it's not good news because your slate gets dirty again. The truth of the gospel is this. When Jesus saves your soul, he doesn't wipe your slate clean. He smashes your slate to smithereens. Nobody knows that better than Matthew. Last week I heard R.C. Sproul speak before a large crowd and he asked this question. Who, in your opinion, is the most important human figure in the Old Testament? And he let that question just sit out there. Then he said, I know what you're speculating. Some of you are saying Adam or Eve, because without them you wouldn't be here. Some of you are saying, no, it's got to be Abraham. Others say, no, it's got to be David. After all, he is the David, the king, whose line, Jesus, the Messiah, came into this world. And then Sproul said, no, it's not any of them. In terms of redemptive history, there is one figure in the Old Testament who is greater and more important than any other, and that's Moses. In fact, Matthew believes that so strongly that according to most biblical scholars, Matthew writes his gospel based on Moses' pattern of writing. The gospel of Matthew is patterned on the first five books of the scripture known as the books of Moses. Matthew knows that without Moses, there'd be no exodus. Without no, with no exodus, there'd be no Israel. And without Israel, there'd be no law. And without Israel and the law, there'd be no Messiah. Without the Messiah, there'd be no gospel. Without the gospel, there would be no broken slate. 
And nowhere is that clearer than in this fourth name of Jesus, the Deliverer. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the construct. Look at verse 13. When the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, the angel appears to Joseph in the dream three times, and then the fourth time, it's unclear as to whether it's a dream or not. But an an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, get the message here. When the wise men have gone, someone far greater than a wise man comes. And he says, the angel says to Joseph, a crazed king is about to kill baby boys. Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now, can you think of another time in the Bible when a crazed king killed baby boys? In Egypt, at the birth of Moses. The Bible says when Moses is three months old, his mother takes him, puts him in a basket that she's pitched with tar, and she floats him out into the river Nile. This mother seeks to deliver her own son from certain death. But here, it's not his mother who seeks to save Jesus. It's not his father who seeks to save him. It's an angel. It's an angel of the Lord who says, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. You know, two weeks ago, Nelson Mandela was memorialized in South Africa. And in the days leading up to that memorial service, it was wall-to-wall coverage. If you listen to any of it, you know that in 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from a prison after 27 years. Within three years of his release, he became the president of that nation. And when he became president, he said, I want to serve one term and that's it. And he did. One British commentator said, the delivered became the deliverer. And that's exactly what Matthew knows about Moses. The delivered becomes the deliverer. He was delivered out of water and he becomes one who delivers the nation of Israel, the people of God, through the water of the Red Sea to salvation on the other side. But Matthew isn't primarily interested in that deliverance. And the reason he isn't is because he knows that there's a greater deliverance that must be had. And that's a deliverance not simply through the Red Sea, not simply from death, but from sin, from the coming judgment of a holy God. Second, notice the content. Look at verse 14. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. Now, notice the order here. Silent night. You know it. I can't wait for Wednesday. 
when I don't have to hear it again for another year. Round yon virgin, mother and child. Now that's the normal way one speaks, mother and child. Not only today, but in antiquity. Round yon virgin, mother and child. And notice, the angel flips the order. He says, child and his mother. Why? Because when it comes to the deliverance of Jesus, it's not the mother who matters. It is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the deliverer who matters. And notice the timing. The Bible says when Pharaoh come, calls for Moses and Aaron to come before the, the people of Israel delivered from bondage. He calls them at midnight. And he says, get up. You. Leave my people. You and the Israelites. So notice when the angel comes to Joseph. He comes at night in a dream. Matthew wants us to see that the angel comes to deliver our deliverer. Not in the daylight, but in the darkness. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, when you're delivered by Jesus, it's never at the daytime. It's never in the daytime of your life. It's in your darkness. None of us are delivered in the daytime. None of us are delivered when everything's good. None of us are delivered when we're at our best. We're always delivered out of our brokenness, out of our darkness, out of our sin, out of our corruption. He comes to us in our night and he says, get up and follow me. And then third, notice the command. Look at verse 15b. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, there are those who read this verse and they say that Matthew is playing fast and loose with the scriptures. They say if he had quoted the whole verse, he would have known that this verse has nothing to do with Jesus and has everything to do with Israel. Hosea 11.1, 1. when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So what's Matthew doing here? He's applying that prophecy about Israel to Jesus. And there are people who say that's not only inappropriate, it's manipulating the scripture. And yet people who say that don't really have a clue because it was an old rabbinic tradition to quote just part of a verse because the rabbis knew that those people who were steeped in the oral tradition knew the rest of the verse. So when Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son, those who read that or heard that would remember the first part of the verse which said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, that's not a prophecy. When God says that in Hosea chapter 1, he's not talking about something that is going to happen. 
He's talking about something that's already happened. He's saying, when you were a child, I called you, Israel. I delivered you from Egypt all the way through the sea. And I delivered you for one reason, so that you might be the deliverer of others. But you never did that. You never delivered others because you could not deliver others. Why? Because your slate was too dirty. You see, Matthew knows that the first son failed. That son was delivered to be a deliverer, and yet he never does deliver anyone because it's the job of another son. I mean, think of this. When God delivers his first son, Israel, he takes them to a mountain called Sinai, and there he gives them a law. He gives them a law that they can never keep. He gives them the law that doesn't free them, but binds them. Instead of removing his sin, Israel's sin, it highlights his sin. Instead of wiping his slate clean with the law, it proves to him and everyone else that no matter what he does, his slate remains filthy. And that's where most people live. They think most people on the outside of the church who have no time for the things of the Lord say it's just religion. And they recognize what religion is. It's a fool's game. Here are people who are hypocrites who are trying to look good, trying to look clean, saying they keep the law, they're saying they're good, and they're not. When God gives the law in Sinai, it's to prove to them their deep and abiding need for him and his forgiveness. But think about this. When God called his only begotten son to another mountain called Calvary, he didn't give us another law there. He gave us grace. And you know how he does it? He does it by giving us a deliverer who doesn't trash the law, but keeps it to to every jot, dot, tittle, marking of the law. He doesn't trash it. Jesus keeps it. In fact, he keeps it so perfectly and so thoroughly that he's willing to hold out his hands and have them nailed to a tree. Have you ever thought about that? When God called his deliverer Moses to save his people through the Red Sea, he called him to hold out his hand over the sea. As long as Moses' hand was held over the sea, the waters were parted. The people walked through that seabed as if it were dry land. But 1,500 years later, when God determines to deliver us, not just through a Red Sea, but from our sin, He doesn't call the deliverer to stretch out one hand. He calls him to stretch out two. You know, those hands are our greatest demonstration that our deliverance is complete. 
Listen to what he says again from the prophet Isaiah, who's writing at the same time Hosea writes. He says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You know what he, you know when he says it? You know when he says that? He says that right after they've made their complaint that he's abandoned them. And I want you to know what Isaiah is saying to us. What God's saying to us through Isaiah. I have engraved you on my hands. Not your name, but you. Listen to what Spurgeon said about that. He has engraven you. Your image is on his hands. Your circumstances, your sins, your temptations, your weaknesses, your wants, your works, all that makes you, you. That's what's engraved on his hands. You, the essence of you, you are engraved on his hands. Now that word engraved in Hebrew literally means to etch or to cut. And there are cultures today who still do this. It's called scarification. And I don't want to gross you out here this morning, Christmas morning. How unthinkable. But I want to tell you about etching, scarification. What is done is a knife or a sharp object is used to cut the skin. Sometimes on the head, sometimes on the arms. Sometimes on the torso, sometimes, if you're very brave, on your hands. And after the cut is made, and the scar is formed, and the wound is healed, then that same sharp object is used, and you begin to etch, scratch that cut. And as the blood flows, you make a deeper cut. And when that scar heals, the wound is healed, then you do it again. And the more you cut, and the deeper you cut, the more indelible, the more dramatic that inscription becomes. So think of what God is saying to us through the prophet Isaiah. He is saying that He has cut us. The essence of you, He has cut into His hand, and He's etched it there. The same hands that held him to the cross are the hands that have you indelibly, dramatically etched in his palms. We are like a permanent scar to him that's always visible. And let me tell you something. The more you sin, the more you break his covenant, the more you complain, the more you kick against his goodness, the more dramatic and indelible that scar becomes. Those that we would forget and give up on, God never does because they're etched into the palm of his hands through the deliverer, Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to write his gospel, He inspires him to pattern it on the 
books of Moses. Because the Holy Spirit knows, and Matthew does too, that when God delivers his people, Israel, from their bondage out of Egypt to the place of law, he has given them an expansive freedom, but it's not a freedom that matches the freedom he's given you and me in Christ. For when he delivers us by the great deliverer, the Mashiach, the Messiah, he delivers us out of our sin and out of our death. And he takes us not to the place of law, but to the place of grace where every one of our slates is smashed to smithereens. There's only one slate that remains in the heavens, and that is the slate of Jesus. All of his righteousness, all of his perfection, that's ours in Christ. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's the meaning of his engravement. That's the meaning of your deliverance in Christ Jesus. Amen.